Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. We're joined today by Dr. Jason R. Combs, Assistant Professor of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University. We're talking about a book that he co-edited. It's called Ancient Christians, An Introduction for Latter-day Saints. And this book was published by BYU's Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship. And uh, Jason, welcome. It's really good to be here with you in person. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. The first thing I want to say is congratulations on creating a fantastic resource for Latter-day Saints that will introduce them to a lot of new ideas. Thank you. I, I think it's so important to have this sort of information readily available. Uh, in the past, most of our works on ancient Christianity have, have taken the approach of finding things that went wrong, have, have approached it from a, from a perspective of looking for evidence of a great apostasy. And because of that, have, have frankly left out a lot of beautiful stories and really important information that this book brings to light. Right. It seemed to me that each contributor really had a fondness for the people that they were studying for these early day saints. And that fondness definitely comes through. And you wrote the introduction. So in this episode, I'd like to talk about that because what you just said really sums up, I think, the message of that introduction. And you begin by talking about a call that each contributor kind of felt that they had, a call to study the New Testament and to study early Christianity. Even as a spiritual exercise, they felt called to the work. You're using Latter-day Saint terminology here. So talk a little bit about your call to that work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I'm, I'm a convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And uh, when I started attending church, I remember sitting in Sunday school classes and just being overwhelmed by how much everybody knew about the scriptures. And, and I wanted to get to that point. So I dove in and started reading everything that was available to me. Some some of the first books I read were things like Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon Doctrine or Joseph Fielding Smith's Answers to Gospel Questions and uh, just just fell in love with with learning. Uh, so when I arrived at Brigham Young University and, and realized that there was a major called Ancient Near Eastern Studies where I could really dive into the ancient historical context of Scripture and to approach Scripture from that perspective, I, I dove right in. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, from there, I went on and, and studied the Bible at Yale Divinity School and then uh, did a PhD in the study of the New Testament, early Christianity at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. How old were you when you joined the church? I was a teenager. I, I started attending when I was uh, 16 years old, but was baptized when I was 18. I, I attended a couple of years of, of early morning seminary at that time. It just so happened to be the two years where they were studying the Bible. Uh, mm. So so part of my conversion was uh, studying the Bible. Yeah, my ninth grade year, which was, was like the first year of seminary for me, was New Testament. And I I feel like that made a big difference in, in how I— I don't know. I mean, I was I was born into the church, right? Um, and so I, I've been a lifelong member, but really studying the New Testament opened up the gospel to me in, in really new ways. It was yeah. exciting to get into the Bible first and foremost. Yeah, I felt the same. You touched on this earlier, but here's a quote here. It says, this book is intended to give Latter-day Saints a chance to meet, empathize with, and understand our ancient Christian sisters and brothers. And you say that, uh, that you hope readers read with a generosity of spirit. That, that sounds really appealing to me. What does the opposite of a generosity of spirit look like? That's a really good question. I think as Latter-day Saints, 
sometimes in our zeal for the gospel, sometimes in our excitement for all the wonderful truths and and blessings that we have received, we pat ourselves on the back as as God's chosen people and can sometimes disparage other people. And I, I keep coming back to this talk that President Ezra Taft Benson gave years ago um, about pride. And he challenged us not to draw those sorts of comparisons. And yet we tend to excuse ourselves in drawing some of those comparisons when it comes to the church. And we can sometimes mock what other Christians believe as a way of justifying what we believe. And that is really not necessary. We can rejoice in all that the gospel gives us without needing to turn against our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And you point out early in the book here that ancient Christians, you say, have expansive, even redemptive vantage points to offer us. Do those expansive and and redemptive vantage points, do they always look like traditional LDS thought? And the reason I ask is because when I got interested in things like Hugh Nibley and and other people that were doing what I saw was scholarship about the gospel, what I was really looking for was pieces of Latter-day Saint belief in other traditions. And when I found that, that's what I was really interested in. And I I wasn't so much thinking about what I could learn from them. Right. I I think in the past, we've approached the history of Christianity in two ways. One is to search for things that are similar to what we Latter-day Saints today believe and use that as evidence to suggest that maybe there was a scattering of truth or scattering of practices early on, and that the things we find in later Christianity actually trace back to some original origin and uh, therefore justify what we believe today. And then the opposite approach we sometimes take is to look for differences and say, oh, well, those differences demonstrate an apostasy and therefore also prove that what we believe today is true. Uh, The approach we take in this book is actually a, a new approach. We turn to ancient Christians to look for what they believe and to understand it on their own terms. And in doing that, uh, gain new perspectives, uh, see our own beliefs through new angles, and, and learn to ask new questions about the sorts of things we believe today. How would you suggest Latter-day Saints, as they're learning about early Christians, how would you suggest they incorporate insights or practices maybe that aren't seen as common Latter-day Saint practices, but that accord well with, with what we do and what we believe? In talking about practices, the chapter that immediately comes to mind is a chapter by Mark Ellison on early Christian worship. And he has some beautiful uh, insights in that chapter about ways in which his own worship has been enriched by ancient Christian worship and ancient Christian insights into the Bible. He gives an example of how some ancient Christians uh, read Isaiah's call in Isaiah 6 and, and angels placing coals on Isaiah's mouth. And early Christians saw that uh, through the lens of their celebration of what we call the sacrament. Ancient Christians would call it the Eucharist. Uh, some Christians today also call it communion. And Mark Ellison talks about how in his own practice of of participating in the sacrament, Thinking about it through that lens has has given new richness to his experience in sacrament meeting as he takes the bread, as the bread touches his lips, thinking about uh, being called like, like the prophet Isaiah and his mouth being cleansed to speak the words of God. I was really, really moved by that, and I can't remember ever seeing that comparison drawn in any Latter-day Saint source. So this right. is something that 
he brought to the table that's beautiful. And another way to think about when we take the sacrament, um, just another lens to view it through. Uh, so yeah, I, I was really excited by that chapter. We'll talk to Mark in another episode here. Um, Jason, as part of your research, you've looked at the history of Christianity over the centuries. And in your introduction, you talk about a history of Christian histories, how Christianity right. has told its history, right? Yeah. I mean, it's this ancient movement. The story's been told in a lot of different ways. And you point to three broad stories that have been told over the ages, a triumph story, a decline story, and then a story of variety. Let's go through those just a little bit here and start with the triumph of Christianity. What does that story look like that people tell? Sounds good. Yeah. So right away, we can get a sense of a triumph story uh, in the New Testament itself. The book of Acts, which uh, is presented as a sequel to the book of Luke, to the gospel of Luke, tells this sort of triumph narrative and, and gives us this sense of uh, Jesus' final message to his apostles is that they are to wait there in Jerusalem till the Spirit comes upon them, till they are endowed with power. And at that point, they are to then go out and spread Jesus' gospel to the ends of the earth. But he gives them very specific directions. They are to start in Jerusalem and Judea, then move on to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And Acts then lays out in narrative form how that message of Jesus is fulfilled as the gospels first preach in Jerusalem, Judea, then in Samaria by Acts chapter 8. And then the rest of uh, Acts is the gospel moving on to Gentiles. And it concludes by Paul in the heart of the Roman Empire preaching the gospel there. So that's right in the scriptures. And then as we get out of the scriptures, Christian history continued. I mean, early Christians, a lot of them, as another chapter talks about, expected the end times to happen a lot sooner, uh, but it didn't. And so now the church is expanding. The church is changing and growing and evolving. How did the triumph story evolve as the church continued to grow? Yeah. So as the church continued to grow, the church did also experience not only a spread in terms of geographical spread— but with that geographical spread, we also get varieties of Christianity as, as different Christians in different places and different cultures read their scriptures in different ways. So it is interesting to then read a church historian like Eusebius writing in the early 4th century who tries to bring it all together and show a triumph despite uh, diversity. And the way he does it is by suggesting that the diversities that don't fit the, the orthodoxy of the fourth century are all heresies, are all break-off groups, but that the truth of Christianity continued. It's really interesting when you read some other Latter-day Saint works about the great apostasy, they will often cite Eusebius. They'll actually, Eusebius relies on the work of a lot of other ancient Christians whose works don't actually survive outside of the fragments that Eusebius preserved. And Eusebius will cite a Christian named uh, Hegesippus. And other Latter-day Saints, Latter-day Saints who have written great apostasy narratives tend to rely on just one or two quotes from Hegesippus that are quotes that talk about how the church was pristine in its early days until the apostles died and then the church fragmented. Uh, what they don't quote is Hegesippus's fragment from Eusebius that talks about how the church was preserved through a, a transmission line of bishops in Rome uh, that go all the way up to Hegesippus's own day when he's writing this around 180 AD. 
so it's fascinating to see how Eusebius, uh, even though he talks about diversity, portrays that as bad and portrays the truth of the church being preserved by quoting people like Hegesippus. And by the way, if anybody's looking for a baby name out there, I think um, Hegesippus is a, is a real strong yeah, contender. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks for that. So, yeah, we see these early church historians that start to continue to tell this story of triumph of Christianity. And a lot of that is about weeding out what they see to be heresy. A lot of these are written by people in power. What do you see happening to sort of everyday Christians maybe that weren't at the centers of power? Do you see different practices kind of declining? Do you see different practices persisting, even though the larger institutional Christianity was sort of stamping them down? What do you see in terms of the story of the triumph versus what was actually happening on the ground at that time? It's often difficult to know what is actually happening on the ground, right? Because all that survives other than art and architecture are texts uh, that are written by the elites, right? These are texts that are written by by people who have power or at least have wealth and time to produce these sorts of texts. So in terms of what lay members of the church are doing, that that can be difficult to discern. And oftentimes you have to read some of these texts for clues to to what these texts are worried about to get a yeah. sense for yeah, what what's they, happening. Yeah, what behind are they the criticizing, scenes. right? Exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly. So Christianity uh, has always been been very diverse and had lots of different perspectives. And even in the Christianity that becomes what what we call Orthodox Christianity, it's not the same from the second to the third to the fourth century. Change occurs as they wrestle with new questions mm-hmm. or as they resolve certain questions in one century that then create new questions for the next century. And to be perfectly fair, we've seen the same thing happen in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today. Uh, the church today, how we worship, uh, the, th- the things that we emphasize as part of our beliefs are not exactly the same as those things that we talked about in the late 1800s and, and is not exactly the same as the way we worshiped then. It's great to see the parallels there in terms of that change, that evolution that happens as people think again about God. And your book and the writers in the book continually point back to the fact that this is people wrestling with how they understand God. This is people trying to do their best with the tools that they have, seeking God, and trying to make their faith lively in the moment. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So that triumph story obviously continues. I mean, people still today have a triumph narrative. There's another sort of history that you call the decline, a decline history, decline of Christianity. And you divide this into kind of three phases, the ancient phase, the middle ages, or some people call them the dark ages, and then the Renaissance, the modern period. Bring us through that sweep of history and how the decline story looks. Yeah. And those those are not my terms. Uh, that terminology is actually invented in the early 1400s at the beginning of the Renaissance uh, by European humanists who are trying to cast the work they are doing of restoring classical forms of art and literature as a time of rebirth. And so they are then describing the period just before they began this renaissance as a period of darkness, of cultural darkness. And they see themselves as these heroes that are restoring classical forms of art and, and literature. So, so they create this, this periodization of history, this, this early true classical period, these dark ages, and then their time, this, this for them, this modern age of the renaissance. 
what's interesting is then century later, 1500s, uh, Protestant reformers pick up on this narrative and use it to cast the Catholic Church as having gone through a dark age period uh, that then necessitates a Protestant reformation, which they often use use the language of restoration. They saw, said what is needed is a restoration of truth, that the church had existed in its, in its purity in the early days, early centuries, uh, and then it went into a period of darkness, and now they had been called to restore it to its pristine form. As you're looking at the actual history and what was going on compared to the story that these restorationists were telling about it, how accurate do you feel it was to say these were dark times, this was the dark ages? I mean, we know that there was warfare, yeah. there were yeah. there were problems all, all throughout. Absolutely. But was this idea of a middle or this dark ages, how accurate was that? Yeah, right. There, there are certainly things that we could point to. Uh, that that darkness is the best way of describing it, right? I, I'm I'm not going to try and justify the Crusades, right? Yeah. And yet, what we see when we look at history is that even in the period that we often refer to as the Dark Ages, there are some beautiful insights and and light uh, going on. Uh, our, the final chapter of our book, we have an afterword in Ancient Christians that was written by Miranda Wilcox on this medieval period. That's her area of specialization. And she shares some beautiful insights of the Christians from that period and and their worship practices and their teachings uh, that really would resonate with Latter-day Saints even today. How did Catholics respond at the time? So they're now being cast in this role of being the the cause of these dark ages and the these great apostasy narratives start to take off what were catholics doing at the time right well catholics respond they they respond in kind uh, whereas <laughs> protestants were pointing to catholics and saying you are the great apostasy catholics point back at the at the protestants and say no you are evidence of the great apostasy you you are this mass break off from god's church this is what was predicted even from the time of Paul, and you are now fulfilling this by apostatizing from the Catholic Church. So it seems like this story ended up being a mirror image of each other, right? Like yes. it's just who you define as the as the Dark Ages kind of depends on on the group that you're particularly drawn to. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, the third one that we mentioned, the third history that we mentioned is the varieties of Christianity. And today we have historians, we have theologians. We also have theologians who are historians and historians who do theological work, and they're all looking at this history. Let's talk about some of the distinctions and tools of these schools of thought, because I think there's really important differences and similarities between doing history and doing theology and how those can interweave. Absolutely. So the, the study of ancient Christian history is really born out of theology, so some of the earliest studies of Christian history were studies that attempted to understand early Christian thought in order to think carefully about what Christians believe today. Uh, that sort of study has often been called patristics or patristic studies. Uh, it comes from the word for father, talking about the early church fathers. So early influential theological writers from from the early centuries of Christian history. Today, most scholars of early Christianity uh, would call their approach early Christian studies, and it looks at Christianity 
using modern historical methodology. So rather than beginning with questions about why does this matter to us today, they begin with questions about why did it matter to them then and try and approach ancient Christians on their own terms. And what we do in this book is sort of a blend of these two. We, we are all committed Latter-day Saints, so we all have deep theological and practical interests in Christian history, and yet we are all trained as historians. And so we are approaching this from the perspective of history. We begin with that. We ask what ancient Christians believed in their own time and how they worshipped in that time and how they represented their beliefs and practices in art and architecture. And then after we have done that careful, detailed historical work, we move on to ask questions about how is this relevant to us today? I've heard some people talk about a difference between confessional and non-confessional approaches, which is people who are just looking at the data and not really concerning themselves with whether the resurrection actually happened, right? versus whether early Christians believed that it happened or what they said about how it happened, right? So there's this confessional approach that a person would believe. So they're sort of doing history that affirms the resurrection of Jesus compared to historians who would do research that just talks about what early Christians believe. Do you think that's a, an interesting, a useful distinction that Latter-day Saints can think of in confessional and non-confessional approaches? I think I would draw the distinction slightly differently. I would talk about the distinction being uh, between maybe apologetic history versus the sort of historical work I just described. Uh, the reason I draw that distinction slightly differently is because everybody, if, if they are doing history, early Christian studies, and asking questions about what ancient Christians believed using the tools of, of modern historians— everybody who's doing that sort of work is coming to that work with their own biases, uh, whether they are believers or not. And it's good to be aware of those biases. And those biases can actually be useful. Uh, to, to take your example of questioning the resurrection, uh, somebody who comes to study the early Gospels on the issue of the resurrection, assuming that there was no resurrection, is going to be asking different questions of mm -hmm. the text than somebody who approaches it assuming that the resurrection is a possibility and is a reality. And so both of those perspectives can bring good questions to the text and can lead to good historical work. Okay, thanks. That's helpful. Let's talk now about how Latter-day Saints have told the history. And you mentioned in the introduction that Latter-day Saints inherited a great apostasy narrative from Protestants. And it seems that you want Latter-day Saints to come at it a little bit differently. And that's what this book exists for. Yeah, this book is ultimately not a book about the great apostasy. There are lots of those books that have already been written. This book is about ancient Christianity and is written overwhelmingly by scholars who are trained in ancient Christianity. So when I say that Latter-day Saints have inherited a great apostasy narrative, this is what I mean. There are certainly passages of, of in, our, in our scriptures, passages in the Book of Mormon, passages in the Doctrine and Covenants, that talk about loss or that talk about, say, a great and abominable church. Well, let's just take that example. Uh, in, in Nephi's vision— in First Nephi, he sees a great and abominable church arise. And when we read that, we often read it through the lens of this early Protestant apostasy narrative that we inherited. So we see great and abominable church, we think, okay, that's the beginning of the great apostasy. At that point, there are no more true early day saints, all right? 
But if you read that verse carefully, what is it that the Great Nabombal Church is doing? The Great Nabombal Church is persecuting the saints. So there are still saints. But we have read this scripture through this lens of this Protestant apostasy narrative that we inherited. And that has caused us to, I think, misread some aspects of our scriptures. And to miss out on early day saints that are kin with us and that, that we can look to and be inspired by. Because, yeah, if we think that it's all or nothing, that there was this great apostasy where everything was gone, everything was awry, and no good was happening, then we have no reason to go back and look and learn and think and be inspired by. Um, whereas if we think that the church, uh, Terrell Givens has talked about the church being in the wilderness, right? The, That's right. The Doctrine and Covenants talks yeah. about the church being in the wilderness. That the church persisted, that there was truth persisting, that the light of Christ persisted, and we can find that light throughout history. That's a really exciting thing to try to do. That's right. Just to take another scriptural example, uh, in in the allegory of the olive tree from Jacob 5, uh, there is a point that that seems to be detailing or giving us an allegory of the history of the world. And there is a point at which all the olive trees are corrupt. Uh, But what they realize is that the root is still good and they don't throw out the root and get a brand new seed and start all over, but they start gathering and grafting and, and that is how they refresh the tree. Now in the history of Latter-day Saint teaching about the apostasy, the ways that we've talked about a great apostasy have changed. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Standing Apart that was edited by Miranda Wilcox and John Young. And a lot of my introductory chapter is simply a summary of the great work they did in that earlier book that shows that there is a diversity of ways in which Latter-day Saints have talked about the great apostasy. Some early Latter-day Saints saw the great apostasy beginning right after the New Testament ended. Other early Latter-day Saints saw the great apostasy beginning around the time of Constantine and that the church persisted up until that time. Others had other views. And there is even differences in opinion about what great apostasy meant. For instance, in the early days of the church, we bought wholesale into the Protestant narrative that the Catholic church was the great and abominable church. Right. Uh, and that, that, that was boldly proclaimed in, in some early uh, Latter-day Saint literature, even in the early 1900s. More recently, however, the church has made it quite clear. I'm thinking of beginning in the second edition of Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon Doctrine and on, uh, as well as um, President Oaks, even after that, made it quite clear that we do not believe that the Catholic Church is the fulfillment of the great and abominable church that's described in, in Nephi's apocalyptic vision. Mormon doctrine really is an interesting dividing line. In the first edition, I think uh, Elder McConkie had said had. Great and Abominable Church, and it said, or if you looked up the entry for the Catholic Church, it would say, see Great and Abominable Church. That's right. And then after yeah. some discussions with other church leaders, that was updated in the second edition to reflect that that wasn't uh, the perspective of, of the church itself. So your chapter does a lot to to prepare Latter-day Saints for what they're going to experience throughout the book. And at the end of your introduction, Jason— you're really making a case to care about early Christianity and early Christians. And you point out that the church today, you say, is not merely version 2.0 of the church established in the days of Jesus Christ, ancient apostles. So we shouldn't expect to just find the exact thing that we have today in the past, right? Give us a sense of what Latter-day Saints can expect then when we're thinking about today's church, when we're looking at the ancient church. I think it's important to remember that when our scriptures talk about restoration, they talk about it in ways that are much more broad 
than simply a replacement of a church that once existed fully formed. Our scriptures definitely talk about restoration of priesthood authority, but beyond that, they talk about, well, let me give you an example. Here's a passage in Doctrine and Covenants 128. I'm going to paraphrase it somewhat. I'm going to skip over a couple of words here and there. I'm going to give it to you as I quote it in my book on page 14. Um, I point out that that according to Doctrine and Covenants 128, verse 18, the church necessarily includes those things which never have been revealed from the foundation of the world, but shall be revealed in this the dispensation of the fullness of times. Well, if the restoration includes restoring things that have never been had in the history of the world, we can't necessarily expect everything in the church today to exist in its perfect form in antiquity. Right. Which means that we cannot assume that the church as it exists today could be used as as a template for thinking about what the church in antiquity must have looked like. And because of that, we can't assume that differences between the church as it exists today and what it looked like in antiquity is necessarily evidence of apostasy. It could simply be evidence of God speaking to different peoples in different times according to their culture, according to what they're ready to receive. And so because of that, in this book, we approach ancient Christians with an open mind and open heart. We approach them asking not for evidence of what is different as a way of proving that they are wrong and we are right, but when we find differences, we explore them on their own terms and ask why those differences exist. How did Christians arrive at different opinions than we have today? That's Jason R. Combs. He's assistant professor of ancient scripture at BYU. He earned his PhD in religious studies from UNC Chapel Hill, focusing on the history of early Christianity, and he edited the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints. Jason, thank you so much for talking about the book with us today. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.